Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Man, it's been an awesome time worshiping this morning. Um, I really, I really, uh, I love when God, He always confirms, He always confirms, but especially this morning, I am, I am just blessed to be in this house because this is a house of of true worship to the Lord. And it's, it's just, it's refreshing to be in here and to, to be with you and to be pursuing the Lord. And man, that song that we opened up with, um, however we worded it, you're all I need. I just, I just feel that so sums up what God has placed on my heart and really a, a defining characteristic of this body. And it's, it's just, it's just burning in my heart this week to speak to you on, um, on what's entitled the house of adoration a house of adoration. And so I want you, our primary text is going to be in Luke chapter 7. You can turn there. I'm going to share another scripture before that that will be on the screen. But turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look at verse, when we get to it, verse 36. Again, that'll be our primary text. I feel extremely passionate about this word, a house of adoration, because I believe it's what God is doing in this house. It's always been our desire to be a place that is marked with a singular pursuit. It's always been our desire to be a place that is marked by a chief obsession, to have an inward disposition of a one thing, which is God and God alone. Our desire is that we would not be caught up in the pursuit of all things or many things, but we would realize that if we have the one thing which is him, we have everything. And yet if we have all things except him, we have nothing. And I feel deeply in my heart that what I want to look at is I want, to, I want us to um, uh, dive into this picture I believe God was, was just giving through a scripture of, of a symbolism of what it looks like to be a house that is just in love with Jesus I feel so deeply that this is what he's doing in this place. It's the way that we were birthed. And what I feel that's really important is we have to continually keep the main thing before us, which is, is him. We have to continually keep um, the, the priority before us, which is Jesus. And the reality that the presentation of just Jesus is enough. I don't know if you know, we don't have to doctor up Jesus. We don't have to make him look good. We don't have to add things to him. He is so good and so amazing and so victorious and so captivating that when we present the real Jesus, this is what hearts are longing for. And I feel strongly that we need to continually right now in this season, this is why I feel this word's really important. We need to, in this season as a body, this is a, a, a word in the season that we're in as a church, that we have to continually keep before us the main thing. Why? Because what I'm noticing is that there's two things that can happen that can get in the way. Number one is as you grow and as new faces come in and as new ministries are birthed and as new challenges arise and new questions arise, um, new issues arise, that one of the temptations is to begin to drift from just keeping Jesus as the centerpiece of what we're doing. And I see it's, it's just even hard as just, just shepherding the house that I can see to my own heart as more things are coming. It's really easy to get distracted with all these other things. And although they have a value, None of it matters if he's not the centerpiece of what we're doing here. And the other thing, and I think this is really important for us, is that 
The other extreme is that when you begin to prioritize the presence of God, right? This is what our heartbeat is. It's just God alone. It's why we gather. We don't gather just for songs. We don't gather just for a sermon. We gather for him. All of these things are pointing us to him. And the other thing that can happen is when you begin to prioritize just Jesus, if, you, if you're not seeing the results that you hoped for, if it's not moving as fast as you hoped for, if you're not seeing the progression of things that you had hoped for, it's really easy to begin to be tempted to say, well, what else do we need to do? Clearly, he is not enough. And I feel like in where we're at that God is doing something where he's, he's man, he's bringing us to a place where he wants us to know that, that all we need to do is stay focused on him, that Jesus is enough. And what I feel that he's doing, and he'll do this in our own lives, but I feel what he's doing right now, from the beginning, this is how God birthed his house, is through fasting and through prayer and saying, Jesus, we want to be a place that screams out that you are, are everything to us. And what God is doing, I feel like this, and people are testifying in their own lives and just in this body, is that God is, is putting us in a, in a holy corner. <laughs> There's a cornering that's taking place. There's a narrowing that's taking place. What do I mean? I, I, I've ex, uh, experienced frustration in my life in that I want to be able to tap into my resources, my strength, my giftings, my experience in order to help this thing move. And what I'm feeling is that there's just a lack of grace to be able to do that because God is, is cutting everything off and just stripping us bare in the places we would find comfortability and strength so that he could get our attention and say, am I enough? God will do this in your own life. He will strip things away to bring you to a place where you feel cornered just so he can ask you the question, am I enough to you? Do you believe that I'm all that you need? And I, I just, I feel like God has brought us to this place where he wants us to stay committed and, and solely focused on him. Don't get distracted by anything that's going on. Don't get distracted by by any of the outside stuff, he's saying, stay committed to me. Stay committed to what I have, have called you to do. And to be honest, from the beginning, look, there's been a number of times where Crystal and I have been frustrated, right? God, God, you got the wrong man, right? How many times have you ever said to the Lord, you got the wrong person for what you're doing? It's easy to say that. Uh, but what the Lord is saying is, when, when will you surrender? When will you surrender to the way that I'm doing it? And I just, I, I feel that there's a surrendering. There's, a, there's something happening in this house where he's, he's shaping us and forming us to be a house of adoration. A house of just a singular pursuit for him. And I sense it in our gatherings. There's something taking place. It's why he brought us back to simply just increase corporate prayer time. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I just sense more of this is going to happen because he's bringing us to a place where we're actually growing. I feel a disdain over other methods. Like he's doing something in my heart where I'm actually discontent to try to do it any other way. There's just something in me that just says, I just want him. This is the season I feel like we're in as a body. And my hope is that not a single person would leave. Because as we're going to see, when we become a house of adoration, which I feel we are, but as we grow in this, not everyone responds well to that. Man, it, it, it offends those who treat the presence of Jesus very casual. It offends those who don't have, who are caught in just a knowledge of him. They'd rather argue over God than adore him. And so there's a lot that goes to this, but I feel like God is stripping us down, bring us to a place where we can say Jesus is enough. Um, there's always new faces in here, so I don't know what your background is. I don't know where, what you believe, but in this house, we believe that Jesus is God. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came and revealed God to us because the fullness of God dwelt in him. And so God came and revealed himself in a human form so we could understand who he is. And I say that because when we look in the scriptures and we see the life of Jesus, we're not just hearing the words of a good teacher. We're not just hearing the words of of someone who has a lot of earthly wisdom. This is God himself speaking to us. And there was a time in which some religious leaders came to him, and in particular a lawyer from the group, it said. And they came and they essentially asked this in Matthew 21. They say, Jesus, what's it all about? This is contemporary terms, but what's it all about? Like, What is the most important thing? And Jesus basically says that's simple. God speaking to man says that's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I feel like we can hear that and say, this is so basic. (laughs) This is so elementary. But what I want to show you is a picture of what it really looks like to fulfill the great commandment in a house. I want to show you what, what fulfillment of loving the Lord your God looks like in a body. And that ultimately this is, this is the primary pursuit that we are called to have above all else is to be a house of adoration. I sense that God is, is detaching us from pursuits of inferior love. Everything else. He's, he's just, this is what he's doing. He's bringing us to a place where we're just saying, Jesus, you're all I want. None of us would probably be opposed to this, that there is... We are living in a time, I don't say this to be doom and gloom, but the reality is, is we know that there's, it says that there's a generation that is about to emerge that for the first time in this nation is, uh, will not really know of the Lord. There'll be a non-Christian generation. Like we see statistics and things that talk about trends of which the, the, as a whole, we are moving away from having faith in God. Um, I get all that. I happen to believe, though, that there is great hope for the eschatology of the church. And the reason why is because when you look in the scriptures, when things begin to get really dark, what God begins to do is he begins to put aside a remnant. He begins to pull aside a group of people and their passion and pursuit of God, their zeal for the Lord is so far superior than what took place when the whole nation was following God. And I believe in my heart that as we see these trends, what's happening is there's a house of adoration that is beginning to rise up. It'll be the remnant that begins to shine in the darkness. And what I feel like God was saying is that this remnant will be known by their bridal identity. Why? God came and revealed himself as a husband and says, you are my bride. And the scriptures say that in the end, the way God categorizes, the way everything will end in Revelation is by a bride and a bridegroom coming together. He could have revealed it any way he wanted, but he says this is what it will look like in the end. It will look like a, a lover God himself coming back for his precious bride. And so I believe that as we as a church begin to grab hold of our bridal identity and begin to fall deeper in love with God, it's actually ushering in the return of our king. Bridal identity. He wants us to be lovers of him. See, this is the problem. We often address people for their lack of knowledge. We actually, we we contend with people for the lack of knowledge rather than their lack of love. But 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up. Love builds. What we need to be addressing in hearts is not, first off, the lack of knowledge, is the lack of love that we have for God. Because this is what actually builds up. We actually have to get to the root of it and see that there's, there's something that's off, that our passion has been directed to something else. And so I want to I share one of the scripture with you in uh, Ezekiel 44, 16. You can look up at the screen. But I, I want to share this to you before we go into the main, main text. 
Ezekiel 44, 16. I believe it's the NIV on, on the screen, but I'm reading out of the ESV. And it says this. I want you to hear this. This is regarding the priest, and it says this. It says, they shall enter. This is the Lord's words. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall approach my table to minister to me, to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. I sense the Lord is bringing us back to a place of ministry unto the Lord. Much of our ministry is unto the house, meaning it's unto man or Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times, and that, that's good, but what happens a lot of times is it's ministry unto the house. It's ministry unto the name of the church. We actually are promoting the church, and we do it in the name of it's, it's for the Lord. But actually, we're ministering unto the growth of a body, of a label, probably because our identity is more wrapped up in that than in the Lord. But God is calling a people into a ministry unto the Lord. God says, he says, I'm going to call my priests. Now, I want you to see this when we go in the New Testament, that we are all adopted or grafted into priesthood. He says, I'm looking for people that will minister unto me. There's a difference between devotion to the work of the Lord and then devotion to the Lord of the work. Most of us, when we think of ministry, we think of uh, public teaching and preaching, and then we think of evangelistic outreaches and let me be clear, when we do these things, when you love your neighbor, it certainly points to the fact that you love God. I'm not denying that. But the scriptures are clear that there is a specific ministry that is set aside that is actually not for man. It's just from man unto God. So this is very important. We see it through Samuel. We see it in David. We see it in the priests. We see it in Acts 13 too. In the church of Antioch, it said they worshiped, fasted, and it said and they ministered unto the Lord. It was actually in that place where they heard a word of Saul and Barnabas to be sent out. And the reason why this is important is because when we minister to someone, what essentially are we doing? We are, we are meeting a need. When I minister to you, when you minister to me, we're meeting a need. It could be spiritual, it could be physical, it could be emotional, relational, whatever it may be. So think about this. The scriptures say that we are called to minister unto the Lord. Well, how could that be? If ministry is about meeting a need, how could we minister unto the Lord? He says, I want you to minister to me. Does that mean that God has a need? Well, not in the sense, of course, he's perfect and he's complete. There's no way that God is lacking in a way like that. But what the Lord began to show me is the fact that in Ephesians 5, God comes and he reveals himself, again, as a husband to us. And he says, just as a husband and wife have become one, he says, so Christ and the church, so God and the church are becoming one. You see, God has a desire to be one with you. Me and my wife, this is what the Lord showed me, me and my wife, I don't need her in the sense of to get me ready in the day. Sometimes I do. <laughs> that's another sermon, all right? That's another thing that's deeper issues than we need to go through here. <laughs> Sometimes I do need, where's my clothes? <laughs> but if all is well, I shouldn't need that. But when I say that I need my wife, what I'm saying is that I desire her love. I desire her intimacy. Do you know that when the Lord says minister unto me, what he is saying is that there's something that you give to him that stirs his heart? Do you know that what it's, see, what do we often say? There's a God-shaped hole in my heart that only God can fulfill, right? Kind of a cheesy way of saying that we hunger and we thirst and only God can satisfy. Likewise, there is a place reserved in the heart of God that only we can touch and move by our affections being brought to him. He says, minister unto me. He says, bring me your affections. His heart longs for our affections. His heart longs for our adoration. 
And sadly, what happens, the Lord showed me in my devotion, and this command set people free, is Lord showed me much of my devotion as I come in about what I can get. Lord, I'm here to bless me and touch me and do all these things. Now, let me be clear. That is a sign of reverence and worship because we know that there's nowhere else but to go to God for these things. So we will continue to pursue God in that way. But we must not forget that there's another side, which is I come in and say, God, I have nothing to ask for from you. I have one thing. I'm here to offer up to you what will satisfy the desires of your heart. God, I'm here to offer my devotion to you because I know there's something within your being that is stirred when you get my devotion, God. When we come into these corporate gatherings, it must be the same. Look, we come in here and we cry out for God, but I just love the thing, Lord, you're all I need. There has to be a point which we come in and say, God, I'm not here to receive from you. I'm here actually just to minister unto you by giving my whole self to you. I lay down my life before you, God. He's looking for living sacrifices. And it's not just because we need it, but his heart longs for your, your intimacy. This is how we minister, by giving our hearts in this way. But sadly, oftentimes we come in and we just, it's about us. It's only about us. And many times we leave, we're saying, I didn't get what I wanted. Or in our devotion time, we say, man, that was empty. I didn't get what I wanted to receive. And man, when God shared this, I went into my devotion with a different perspective. I said, Lord, I don't care if I get a thing. I'm here to bless your heart today. I'm here to give you what you're worthy of. I'm here to give myself to you. I want to minister unto you. You see, this is what happens. Many times, many times we, uh, we can hear often of uh, preaching and coming against uh, God's hatred for sin. That's true. God hates sin. The problem is, is that we're communicating this without a lack of the knowing the Father's heart. The reason why God hates sin is because it gets in the way of you and him becoming one. And we need to understand his heart behind it. We can like it or not, but it's God's revelation to us that he is actually a husband looking for a bride. He is actually a grieved parent looking for a wayward child. That's not our understanding. That's God's understanding. That's how he reveals himself. This is why we shared a few weeks ago when God came to Adam, what did he ask him in his sin? We said this, whatever it was, a month ago. God says, Adam, where are you? The sin affected the greater thing, which was what God came to meet with him. And yes, Adam needed God, but God was saying, Adam, I desire to meet with you. Oh, I thought about the heart of God, who's perfect love, who abounds in love, right? And how love has to, love is not selfish, it gives. When you are, when you are possessed by love, man, you have to give yourself away. God makes us in his likeness and his image in order that he could love because it's just natural to him. And how many people is he calling out, where are you? And hearts are hiding from him. What that must do to the heart of God, grieving his heart, breaking his heart. Many children of God, children of God, hiding, sometimes in good things, sometimes in our studies of him, in our doing our work for him. We do all these things, and actually his heart is breaking because he says, where are you? I want to meet with you. And so listen, it says that the way that the priests would minister unto the Lord, one of the ways is that they'd offer sacrifices and offerings. Do you know that in the New Testament it says that you are brought into the royal priesthood? And do you know that Paul says there's still sacrifices being offered? But he says it's no longer animals. It's no longer goats and sheep. Paul says you are a living sacrifice. He's not just looking for us to give external things to him. He's looking for an entire being to be laid out before him because that is what he is worthy of. I'm convinced that much of what American 
church looks like, the organizational aspect of it is not offering up something that is satisfying the heart of God. We're coming in and going through a routine. We're doing what we need to do. And we leave and there's not been a laid out lover, a living sacrifice laid before him saying, God, I don't care what I look like. Here I am, Lord. You are worthy of everything. You're worthy of my tears. You're worthy of my kisses. You're worthy of my resources. I lay everything before you, God. Oh, we need a picture like we're going to see of the sinful woman who just sits before him and says, God, I don't care what anyone sees. I adore you, God. You are worthy of everything that I have. I sense strongly this is what God is doing in this house. Bring us to a place where we just love him deeply. This is why God says, how many have heard that it, that it says in Ezekiel, he says, I, there's a time coming, which we live in, where the spirit of God will be sent out. And he says, when the spirit of God comes, I will take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And someone prayed this week in our prayer meeting. When I heard it, the Lord said, write this down. I wrote it down. And he said, I want you to come back to it. When I came back to it, I just felt the Lord all over it. Because what he showed me was that oftentimes the Israelites, what they would offer up to God, because their hearts were just, just far from him, is that they would offer up something external. What they would offer up was just form. What they would offer up is just ritual. And God would often say, I'm displeased with this because I'm not just interested in you offering up a form to me. I'm not just interested in you offering up something external. God says, I want you. And therefore, he said, there's a time coming when the spirit of God will be poured out and your heart will be tenderized to me again. And therefore, I can get the sacrifice that I've always wanted, which is your entire being. You lay it out before me. This is what it looks like to come in and worship God. This is what happened this morning. We come in with an idea, yeah, we plan, we have songs, and then all of a sudden, boom, God just moves, and all of a sudden, we just sing the same song over and over. <laughs> if that's how he leads, it's how he leads. Why? Because we're here for him. And if this, is, if this brings you pleasure to hear one song, then we sing it, God. If it brings you pleasure to sit in silence, then we sit in silence. Whatever it is, Lord, we're here to minister unto you. And listen, when, they, when the priest in the Old Testament ministered to the people, it was in the outer courts. When they ministered unto the Lord, it was in the inner courts. If we desire for the glory of God in this house, if we desire for a holy of holies atmosphere, an inner courts atmosphere where the presence of God is so rich, it'll be when we begin to come in here and minister unto the Lord first. When he begins to see this, man, this is where there's beautiful encounters with God. So here, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 7. I'll just share this briefly with you. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. You guys with me? Yeah? Quiet today. <laughs> Listening. All right, that's good. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 7. We're going to uh, read a few, few verses here in this story, and this is where we'll just we'll finish off for today. A house of adoration coming in to minister unto the Lord to give him what he's worthy of. This story, it's, it's, we see a similar story in every gospel account. Just so you know, there's some debate over whether or not it's the same story. Some say it's two different accounts. There are, there are differences between this and what we see with Mary of Bethany, but at the same time, there's overwhelming similarities. And so I just, I just share that if you come across this story, there's just, we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of similarities between these other stories. And what I want you to see in this, what God is highlighting is that this is, I believe, provides a picture, holding true to what the scriptures say, there's a picture of, of two different responses to the presence of God. 
there is a picture here that emerges of a gathering that's taking place, and we see two different ways that people are responding to Jesus coming into the house, and I believe it represents two different types of churches, two different types of gatherings. You follow me? So let's read this. It says here, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees, which we know his name was Simon, one of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So this Pharisee, Simon, invites Jesus into his house. Don't get hung up on the fact that he's a Pharisee. From what we know, this man genuinely wanted to know more about Jesus. That's all we can tell. He invites Jesus into his house. And the point is, is that he invites him in. And when Jesus is invited, he always comes. This is important because he comes. And when, when, when Simon invites Jesus, Jesus comes and answers this invitation. And he comes and he begins to, to participate in what Simon has prepared for him. And Simon, and what we can tell, is going through a typical uh, a night of, with a guest. There is a, there's a few different courses of meal. He has guests coming around. And in every way, it's kind of like a party. And so there's a gathering that Simon has. He invites Jesus, and Jesus comes because every time Jesus is invited, he comes. Do you know right now that there are churches everywhere meeting, they've invited Jesus, and by his spirit, he's coming. This is important to understand because you need to know that he's there, and he's meeting with them. And so Jesus is here going right along with what Simon has prepared for him. But then listen to this in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So her lifestyle was something where she was known for living a life out of alignment with God. She was a sinner. It was past tense, though. When she learned that, she was, that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, this expensive ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the anointment. Wow. Let me just stop there. <laughs> Simon, this Pharisee, invites Jesus into the house. Jesus is sitting, participating, because he comes when he's invited. And then there's this woman who comes. And when this woman comes, she disturbs everything. She literally crashes this party. She hijacks this party. What Simon had, Simon's like, I have a plan of where we're going. We're not even on the last course of the meal. And this woman comes in, and everything gets messed up because of what? Because of a response to the presence of Jesus. As she comes in and she sees who it is that's meeting there, she gives a proper response of his worthiness. And as a result, everything begins to be messed up. Oh, we have settled for plans and strategies. And what God wants to do is bring a loving bride in to interrupt what we have laid out. Simon's here sitting. He's going through the night. Man, we've perfected the meals. We've perfected the, the, the structure of our gathering. We've perfected that. I understand the place for that. We've perfected that. But then what happens is there's a loving bride who walks in, and when she begins to come before the feet of Jesus, everything gets disrupted because she's actually showing his worthiness. And what she's doing is actually, as she does this, is she's exposing the casualness for which they were, were attending to Jesus and his presence. Like when she came in, they were content to just sit with Jesus. She came in. It says that she looks for him. I just had this picture. They all sit around the table, right? 
They sit around the table. They would often uh, have their feet coming out from the table. That's where they'd wash the feet. They would often kind of lean on a side and eat with their other hand, right? This is why when John, he laid into the bosom of Jesus, it was kind of like Jesus was here and he leaned back into him. So they're all leaning like this. And this woman comes in and says, and she looks for him. And she scans the table, scans it, scans and says, found him. And she goes to him. She was not content to just fall in line with the party that Simon had. She was here for one purpose. I'm here to meet with him. And when she began to express and offer up this type of offering, it was exposing and touching the casualness for which they were approaching and dealing with Jesus. She is revealing his worthiness. Can I tell you something, man? I have seen my own heart be touched. I've seen it in other gatherings. It happens in here. Many have testified that one of the greatest impacts on their life, people getting saved by one thing. You know what it is? They come in and they see people who are offering up a worthy sacrifice unto the Lord. And they're, 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 half, they're confronted with the reality of their lack of love for him. They must say, who is this that this person is willing to give this up to him? I need to know him. I can tell you that in all of our strategies, this is one of the greatest ways to have an impact on those around us. And it says that she ministered. I just want you to see this. She ministered at the feet of Jesus. This, uh, this week in Tuesday Chapel at Sum, we spoke about Mary of Bethany and sitting at the feet of Jesus when Martha was busy. It's, it's amazing how this theme keeps coming up to me of uh, these women. And this could be, again, the same story, but how they spent, they have ministered at the feet of Jesus. The feet, the lowly position. They weren't striving to and jostling for positions. They were content to just have the lowliest place, which was just at his feet. And Jesus, when he sees someone who's that humble, he'll enthrone his life upon them. When, when, when you are willing to release all striving for a position and you say, I am content to just sit at his feet, I'll minister in the dirt as long as I'm with him, I tell you this, Jesus will come and begin to enthrone himself there. Like if we're going to be a house of adoration, it's going to require, the uh, not that it's happening, but just all pursuit of fleshly things, of, of position and status and being known, it just has to go. It has to go. And we just have to come to a place to say, Jesus, if I have one thing, if I'm allowed to sit at your feet, take everything else. And if sitting at your feet and being content there disturbs hearts of other, where they start to mock and whatever it may be, then so be it. I'll lose everything as long as I have you. Like, this is what he's looking for. Do we say that he's worthy enough? She let her hair down. She let her hair down. In public, that was a disgraceful thing in these times. Literally, she was willing to minister at the feet and lay her hair down where she was disgraced publicly. She said, I don't care. Throw it aside. Like, think about what she's doing. This is what it looks like to give him proper attention. God says, Andrew, you need to be able to do this. Like, sometimes it's just, you know, thank you, Lord. <laughs> And there's a place for that, but the Lord's like, man, if I'm moving and I'm responding, like if I say you fall on your face, son, then you fall on your face. If, if there's a reason to shout, like I can shout for the New York Giants. <laughs> can I not shout when the king is here? But really, can, can we not shout? Is he not worthy enough of that? And so he comes in and he's, I just feel he's saying the hearts, man, you need to become undignified before me. Lay down your pride. Let yourself be wrecked. I'll take you to places you could never go if you hold on to that pride. So Jesus wrecked it all. David, David, when, uh, when, the, when the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was returned to Jerusalem, it says that uh, when it came in, it says David began to throw a feast. 
he began to give food out to all these people, and he began to dance. And his wife, Mikhail, looked down from her window and was disgusted by it. And you know why? It says because he was dancing in his undergarments. <laughs> and, she, and when he went back to his house and he went to her, and, and he went to talk to her, and she said, how could you do that? How could you expose yourself like that? He says, you, she says, you're a king. And he, and he says, God has chosen me before your father did or before my family did. I will dance with joy before him. He says, I will become even more undignified. I will be even more humiliated before my own eyes. There is a place of breakthrough and healing when we come in and we just say, guys, it's, it's just, of course it's in line with scripture, but God, we're off. We're just throwing off all restraints. We're not here to, for it to look like a nice little gathering. We go through our steps. Jesus, wreck us. Take us to a place, God, we just pouring out our hearts before you. Because that's what he's worthy of. And I, I know he's doing that in this place. I know he's doing that. And so verse 39, she comes in and disrupts this gathering because of the attention, the adoration that she gives. And in verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, Simon that is, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. I find it interesting that in this case, in other ones we see that it's the disciples that question her. In this case, they're actually coming against Jesus. Their perception about Jesus is changing because of the, of the worship and offering that she is giving. Who, wait, wait, who is this? Because if he was really, who said he is, man, this, what, what he's receiving right now, I guess I don't know him because who is this that would allow this to happen? Man, I feel like this happens all the time in here. I've got to, you know, we got to check our hearts, right? Like how many times are we going to sing the same chorus over and over? <laughs> how, how, how long are we going to sit in silence for right now, right? How long is he going to keep speaking for? And what happens is, is that these moments of adoration are actually exposing why we're really here. Why are we here? Like, are we here for him? Are we here for him? Are we here for Jesus? Then we say, God, lead the way, whatever it looks like. And so I want to just skip a few verses into verse 44. I'll skip a few verses, and we'll close here. 35 minutes later. <laughs> Shane, Shane sent me a joke of a guy's face when it says, when the pastor says I'm closing 35 minutes ago. <laughs> so, so Jesus, in response, he says, let me tell you something, Simon. And he gives, this, he gives this story, basically, which is not my main point, but just so you know, he, he says there's, there's two people. One has a large amount of debt. One has a small amount of debt. They're both forgiven. He says, which one do you think will love more? He says, I suppose the one who has a larger debt. He says, that's exactly right. He's saying that's what's happening here. She was aware of what she was forgiven of. She was aware of what she was forgiven of. But here's where it gets interesting. And then in verse 44, after he gives the story, he says this. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Listen to this. I entered your house. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. There was a common anointing that they could give. You didn't do that. But she has anointed my feet with expensive ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. What's the point? Jesus gives this commentary on what takes place. He goes back and kind of gives an analysis of, hey, this is what happened when I entered your house. And what he says is, you gave me no water. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil. And the point is, is that what Jesus is saying is, I would have received those things from you. But you were not willing to give them to me. I was willing to take your tears. I was willing to take your kisses. I was willing to take your oil. I was willing to meet with you in this way that would have been so powerful and sweet. I was willing to commune with you, but you were not willing to give me those things. And so Jesus, in his humility, has every right to demand that we give him all of that. But he doesn't. Instead, he comes to the invitation and he just begins to participate according to the response of love that he's getting. So all of us are here. Man, we can go right through the order right now. And we can just give him up the normal. Do you know that actually a lot of these things were, were excessive? They were, not, they were beyond the common hospitality. The problem is Simon just treated him as a normal guest. He's not a common guest. He's king. And he's Lord. And when he comes into this house, he's worthy of everything. And some of us, some of us need to start giving these things because this is where breakthrough will happen in your life. God is saying we need to come out of just being content to go through this, uh, whatever it is, two hours on a Sunday and say, God, I am giving you everything, Lord. You deserve it all. When we invite him into this house, man, I pray that we would be a place of adoration. I pray that he would have received from every person their tears, their kisses, their oil, in all personal ways that he would say, Lord, you can have it all. Man, how many times, how many places are perhaps gathering ourselves? We've got to put ourselves in there, Lord. Search our own heart. How many of us are gathering and we're just offering up the common response? And he said, I was so ready to engage with you in your brokenness. I was so ready to engage with you in your pain. I was so ready to take your passions and breathe on them. I was so ready to take your resources, your oil. I was ready to breathe on them. If you'd give them, I could do something with it. But you gave me nothing. And so here's... Here's what these three things represent. And then, Shane, I will close. Yeah. Tears, kisses, oil. I just want you to see practically, okay, I get it. You want me to love him, but what, what can I give? There's three things that are offered here. Number one is tears. I believe tears represent her pain. Her pain. I don't know exactly what was going on in her life, but I know that her pain propelled her into worship. Some of us need to be willing to give our tears before him. Some of us are walking in a lot of things and we're just not willing to get before him and allow him to break us and allow him to receive these things. And he wants to take your tears. He wants to take the things that you're walking through. If we would just surrender our pride, he is willing to do this. The problem is some say, oh, this is just a matter of emotionalism. <laughs> it's not emotionalism. Trust me, I'm the furthest thing from it. It's not emotionalism. But I can't help it that I'm an emotional being and when I encounter the living God, Sometimes I just begin to break. Sometimes when I encounter the living God and I just stare upon his goodness and all that he's done in my life, I can't help but just begin to fall apart. And some of us just need a good weeping session before the Lord. Some of us need to get in here with all the heaviness we bring in and say, God, here it is. And what you're doing is you're actually saying, you are worthy of my tears. You are worthy of my pain, God. I won't bring my tears anywhere else. I'm going to bring it to you and to you alone. 
And if, pain, if tears represent pain, then kisses represent our passion. Our passion, intimacy. He wants this from us. He wants the longings, as I said before, he wants us to minister unto him. He wants the deepest uh, affections and desires of your heart to be placed into his hand. He wants all of your passions. I mean, some of us, we're so passionate. God's give great callings in our life. He's saying, give me everything you're passionate about. Lay it out. Lay out the vision you see in your life. Lay it out before me. Let me have it. Let me, let me tweak it. Give it all over to me. And the last thing is the oil. And the oil represents resources or strength. Sometimes it's easy to give things to God when we're broken. Sometimes it's easy to give the pain. Sometimes it's hard to give him when we're in periods of success. <laughs> and I believe it's easy to then become confident in those things. And God says, hey, give me your resources. When you feel even successful, give me these things so that you can testify that if I have you, I have everything. It's all false security anyway, God. So here it is. I give you my strength. I give you my resources. Do you know in the, one of the other accounts that when this woman broke the alabaster jar, you know what it says? It says that the disciples... They came and said, what a waste. What a waste. You know, I thought about this, a waste. A waste is when you buy a big, juicy steak, and it's untouched, and you give it to a dog because the dog's not worthy of it. A waste is when you throw gold into a sea. Waste is when you give pearls to swine. Waste is when you give something of great value to something of significantly less value. Waste is not when you entrust yourself to the Lord. Do you know what that means? That means that the disciples, none of them saw Jesus being worth more than a year's wage because that's what that ointment was worth. Except one, this woman. She saw his worth. And she was willing to give everything to him. And Jesus is of immeasurable worth. And to use that idea, God wasted his son on us by allowing him to be broken and spilled out for us. How can we not respond and give him everything? What we give to the Lord, the way we, the way we, um, what we surrender to him reveals the worth that he is to us. And we could say, I love you, you're this, you're that, but man, what are we bringing to him? And I've heard it said this way. He is himself the jewel above rubies, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, the most valuable being in the entire universe. His worth, immeasurable. And Jesus said after she gave this, he said, this is a picture of love. He says, she loved me much. In other words, what he's really saying, to bring it back, he says, this is a picture of fulfillment of that great commandment. We want to be a church. We say, man, great commandment, that's so elementary. This is what it looks like. And if our hearts are not in alignment with this, we need to say, God, you need to bring us into a place where we love like this. This is what it looks like to love him much. And you know what they said at the end? Look at this. Verse Verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? <laughs> when they were confronted with this type of love and adoration, they began to speak internally and amongst one another, who is this? All of our strategies, all of our planning to reach people, it's usually after one thing. We are hoping that we would have a same internal question take place in their hearts. We are hoping that they themselves would say, man, who is Jesus? I want to know about him. And here, this is amazing. All it takes is a church that begins to love him rightly, and people around begin to say, who is this? I want to know who this king is. Yeah. 